I always talk about shooting being sort of broken down into three things. You know, you have to have some semblance of good form. The second part of that is repetition, and that's just the practice component of it, doing things over and over again until you really develop a skill set. And then the third part is confidence. But for me, you can't have confidence without having that second part. Mm. That second part of repetition and work and practice over and over again, that's ultimately what gives you confidence. And it's no different in anything else in my life. Welcome everybody to Airplane Mode, a GQ podcast. I'm your host, Clay Skipper. One of the things we wanted to do in having these conversations about confidence was go out to people whose job requires them to have an elite level of confidence or a type of confidence that's sort of unshakable or unflappable, which is why I'm super pumped to welcome JJ Reddick to the podcast today. JJ is a longtime NBA player. This is his 14th season in the league. He plays for the New Orleans Pelicans. Before he played in the NBA, he was at Duke, which you may have heard is a pretty good basketball school. And JJ was not only the best player on Duke, but the best player in college without question. But the reason JJ is such a good subject for a conversation about confidence is because he has always been a sharpshooter. So that requires a very specific type of confidence because no matter how many shots he misses, he sort of always has to believe the next one is going in. That's just the way you have to think about your ability to shoot when you've shot as well as he has for as long as he has at the level that he has. I know that I don't operate that way. You know, that we all have days where we don't feel confident. That could be at work, could be at home, could be exercising, could be anywhere really. And if you're like me, I know that in those moments, sometimes I'm like, well, I just don't know if I'm ever going to be good enough again. JJ's not really allowed to have those thoughts. You know, you get too far inside your own head and you can think your way out of being a good shooter. So I wanted to ask him not just how he got that confidence or how he earned that confidence, but also how he maintains it when he's going through a shooting slump or he has multiple games in a row where he just can't hit anything or he misses the shot at the end of the game and lets his teammates down. I think hearing him talk about that will change how you guys think about being more resolute in your self-belief even in down times anyway i enjoyed it it's all in there hope you guys dig it too today on airplane mode i'm sitting here with jj reddick jj welcome to the podcast thank you very much for having me on i want to rewind a little bit because the first time i like became aware of you i'm sorry to have to tell you right here is as a carolina fan watching duke basketball which i assume a lot of people that's how they got to know you and one of the things that, that was very remarkable watching you is just how self-assured you were on the court and how confident you seemed to be. And I'm curious how you came to that confidence. So I want to rewind to you. You grew up being homeschooled the first couple of years of your life, right? Yeah, I was homeschooled until fifth grade. My mom had started me a year early. So okay. I was actually like doing fifth grade when I was nine. And she tried to put me in sixth grade and the county basically was like, no, he's got to do fifth grade again. So I did fifth grade in public school. And by that time I had started playing sports, uh, baseball and basketball. And I was good. I mean, I was good. I wasn't great, but I was good. And I think playing sports and moving into a public school allowed me to make friends pretty easily. So you're sort of assured, you know, self-assured socially and then athletically um i had you know a decent level of natural skill and you know i i probably had 
a, a good amount of confidence from the time I was 10, 11, 12 years old. Were you confident as a, as a young kid? I was really lucky in that my parents never gassed me up. Okay. And by that, I mean they always kept me level-headed and grounded. And so I think the confidence part of it for me was because I did something repetitively over and over and over, it gave me the confidence that I could then go do it in a game. Hmm. We had like a shed or garage on one side of our property and there was like at the base of it, there was a concrete wall and the hill next to it kind of sloped gradually up and it kind of made for like a mound mm -hmm, essentially. Mm -hmm. And I would take a baseball and throw it against that concrete wall for an hour. I drew a little strike zone and I'd do that over and over. It was, a, it was something I could do by myself. And then in the backyard was the hoop and that was also something that I could do by, my, by myself. So I would, I would do that over and over again. I'd, I'd be out there for hours. And even as a homeschooler, like I'd get my work done at 11 a.m. and I'd just go play sports for four or five hours by myself. And was the repetitive nature of throwing the baseball or shooting the basketball, was that therapeutic in any way? Because I, I listened to you on Pete Holmes' podcast, which was great, by the way. And you were talking about how when you were two, your mom would come into your room and you'd be ordering the shoes, right? And so was that repetitive nature something that was like soothing to you and still is maybe now or? Yes. The easy answer is yes. So my mom, yeah, she would catch me organizing my my shoes in my closet as a two-year-old. My toys were, I mean, they were exquisitely organized um, growing up. And I always kept really good care of my things. Uh, even now, it drives my wife crazy. Because, like, if I see a crumb on the floor of our apartment, I'll, like, walk over and, and have to, like, I have to pick it up. Mm -hmm. I just, I like sort of that order. And... You can't really control whether you throw a strike or whether you make a jump shot, but by doing it repetitively, you you get pretty good at it. And it's not just therapy. They're they're literally even to this day. Uh, you know, I go to the gym almost every day and shoot, and it's like there's something about seeing the ball go through the mm -hmm. net that provides me with like a dopamine hit. I mean, I've described it before as sort of like a mini orgasm. Yeah. And to do that over and over again. And that's what happens in a game too. Like you're there's that there's that, you know, energy that happens in a game and it's it when the ball goes in the basket and the crowd roars, it's it's amazing and it's it's therapeutic for sure. I love that description. I feel like it's an important caveat to make that it doesn't always happen in a game. I've had a lot of games where the ball does not go through the net. I've had, and, a, I've had a lot of them too. <laughs> so does that do you have very ordered routines then when it comes to like for instance how you approach a free throw? I mean, you're a very successful free throw shooter. And that's something I actually wanted to get into on this because I think it's such like um clearly such a psychological mind fuck. Like you see so many players struggle so greatly at the free throw line. How do you approach your free throws or how can you even articulate what that like psychological battle is to not psych yourself out at the, at the charity stripe? You're absolutely correct. So it's the one time in a game where um, something's happening, but for all intents and purposes, the, the play is stopped yeah. and everyone is watching you. And it's not an organic thing that is happening right in the flow of the game. It's a set piece, uh -huh. like in soccer. And I have found, at least personally, that when I am going through some struggles at the free throw line, and again, I'm I, not to brag, but I'm top 10 or 11 all time in the NBA in terms of percentage, but there are times where like, I'll go have a two month stretch and I'll shoot 85% uh -huh. or whatever. And I'm like, man, I've missed five free throws in the last two or three weeks. And I've found that a lot of times it is 
completely mental. Hmm. It's that not that the shot didn't feel right or the, the shot didn't feel good or whatever. It's I'm psyching myself out. And when you talk about routine and you ask me about routine, I used to have this really, really long routine. And it was spin, dribble, spin, dribble, spin, dribble, spin, shoot. And it took like seven or eight seconds. And as I got older, I found that the longer my routine was, the more time it gave me to be in my own head. Hmm. And so now I usually mix it up during the season if I you know, have a rough stretch. But now it's either dribble, spin, or dribble huh. and shoot. Yeah, it's one of those things you see like, you know, I guess the most famous example is Shaq. And it's just, yeah. you can get to a point yeah. where if you've missed enough in a row, it's almost like you're <laughs> never going to climb back out of that psychological hole. Yeah. I had a stretch this past season. It was right after the All-Star break, and it lasted three weeks, three and a half weeks, where I had, I think, literally four of the worst shooting games I've had in my career. I think I had like an 0 for, or a 1 for 11 game, a 1 for 10 game, a 2 for 12 game, a 3 for 13 game. And in between that, I had, I had had one good game. I had hit, I hit like uh, seven or eight threes against Orlando. And, you know, you have a game like that and you're like, oh, I'm going to break out of it. But I didn't. And then I went back and I had two more really rough shooting games. And I remember getting home from this road trip and I walked in the front door and Chelsea was there and I just like crumpled to the floor. And I was like, I can't make a shot. Like, I, I you know, and I, I'm crying. And then like, Literally, the last four games of the regular season, I hit like seven threes a game and scored huh. 28 points a game or whatever it was. And it's like, it just, something happens and it yeah. clicks. But when you're in the middle of it, you feel like you're never going to get out of it. It's really weird. So yeah, that's what I was going to ask is like, so on shot 11 of that night, are you just like, <laughs> I suck and this isn't going in? Or do you have a rational no. confidence? What do you think? No, I think every shot is going okay, in. Well, you I have mean, to. The yeah. other thing is like, I don't like, and I'll admit this, like I take at times very difficult shots and like i would never take a shot unless mm -hmm. i thought it was going to go in and right. i wow. if i and that's what's frustrating for me and i'll do this sometimes even in a shooting workout where you know generally in a shooting workout i'm if i good days i'm shooting between let's say 80 and 85 percent on any shot i take whether it's off the dribble or sprinting off a screen or spot up threes whatever it is but even then like if i miss two or three in a row it's like <laughs> wait a minute like, why, why didn't that go? I don't understand why it's not going in. It's hard to sort of figure that out. Like, when am I going to start making shots again? And I think you sometimes have to take a helicopter view and get up <laughs> in the clouds a little bit yeah, and look at sort of long-term trends here. And you're like, oh, yeah, yeah, I'm a, I'm a good shooter. Like, it's <laughs> going to start going in again. But you have to earn that sort of helicopter view, right? <laughs> yeah. So I imagine when you left Duke, maybe you felt that way. But at what point in your life did you sort of, you know, I'm putting you in a tough situation here, but like, no, you were an exceptional, um, an exceptional shooter. I, I, I knew it before Duke. Okay, okay. <laughs> Summer before eighth grade, I was playing in an AAU tournament in Memphis, and I was a good player. I hadn't really hit my growth spurt yet, but I was a good player. So this is like 13 and under AAU. We were playing in the national tournament and I was playing really well this game. I think I hit like three threes and had a breakaway layup, got undercut, broke my right wrist. Mm. Two or three days after I got my cast off, I was playing in a pickup game at my junior high school, got undercut again. This time I broke my left wrist. And when I broke my left wrist, I had like eight weeks in a cast where I just could use my right hand. And because I had broken it, I sort of had to regain all my strength. I, I mean, I was literally 
two or three days out of the cast when I broke my left one. So I would just stand in front of the in front of the hoop two, three feet and just shoot one-handed over and over and over and over again. So fast forward eight, eight, 10 weeks, I'm now shooting threes one-handed and I get my cast off and I realize like, I don't have to use my left hand anymore huh. as like extra support. I can just use it as a guide hand. And so by the end of it, and I ended up breaking my wrist at the end of that year, I played JV as an eighth grader and like second to last game, I broke my right wrist again. Same thing, getting undercut on a fast break. But um, by the end of eighth grade, I had grown from five six to about six two six three, and could shoot the shit out of the ball. Hmm. And wow. so I knew in eighth grade, like I was gonna, I was big enough now where I was gonna play D one, and it was just a matter of like, was I gonna put in the work and really go after this and try to play at Duke? Did you stop getting undercut on fast breaks <laughs> after that, or what? Uh, yeah, I basically just, I do two, <laughs> I, 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 I do floaters and I basically, do, if there's anyone in the vicinity of me, I don't leave my feet. I just shoot a floater or shoot a jump shot. What has the sort of the confidence that you have in shooting and what you've learned about how you did sort of grow into a confidence there? Has that yeah. informed anything off the court? Sure. Yeah. I always talk about shooting being sort of broken down into three, three things to be a great shooter. You know, you have to have some semblance of good form. The second part of that is repetition, and that's just the practice component of it, doing things over and over again until you really develop a skill set. And then the third part is confidence. But for me, you can't have confidence without having that second part. Mm. That second part of repetition and work and practice over and over again, that's ultimately what gives you confidence. And it's no different in any anything else in my life. You know, if let's say I'm doing a public speaking thing, I wanna be prepared for that. Yeah. And I'll go into that with confidence because I've got six pages of notes or whatever it may be. If I'm, if I'm recording a podcast episode, my research starts about a week out. Investments is another thing. Huh. You learn about it, you prepare, you have conversations with advisors, you have conversations with people that are way smarter than you. You gain <laughs> a little bit of knowledge, you make an investment. Whatever it may be in my life, it's just that preparation and that sort of repetitiveness over and over again that huh. ultimately gives me confidence. Wow, I love that. Was that was that something, I mean, did your parents teach you that or is that something you more learned from the shooting? Uh, I think it's probably both. Both my parents uh, were incredible parents and I, I got different stuff from them. But I think my confidence, competitiveness, that sort of will that comes from my that comes from my mother. And, you know, she... It wasn't always blatant. It wasn't always very outspoken, but she planted seeds in me from a very early age um, that gave me confidence, you know, in terms of, look, and I try to do this with my kids too. I really want my kids to know they're loved and to love other people. That's all that really matters to me beyond that. And so my mother, I always knew my mom loved me and she always made me feel like I was, I don't want to say special, but I, that I, I could do things, that I was capable of doing things. And so I, I had confidence before I ever shot a basketball, before I ever threw a baseball, I had confidence. And that was, that was for my mother. I love that. It's, I don't know why it's taking me here, but it's making me think of, um, we did a podcast with BJ Miller who like works in hospice and palliative care. And so works a lot of people on like at the end of their life. Mm. And I don't know why he was talking about this actually, but he was talking about how like if someone feels 
safe. They can be playful. I think he's talking about his dog. He was like, that really taught, like watching my dog really taught me something. Cause if the dog felt safe, it would just be playful or whatever. And it's sort of like this. I, I think about that sometimes with parenting. It's like, yeah. I mean, I'm not a parent, but like <laughs> if you, it feels like if you create, if, if you feel like you give your, your child the sense of security and the sense that it's going to be okay. And maybe that like, there isn't some threat of punishment looming over their head. They can feel like they can be, can yeah. be playful and they can sort of experiment with who they are. And I imagine that does give them a sense of confidence. I, I think too, the, the feeling of safety can sometimes stimulate the urge to take a risk. Mm -hmm. As we sort of grow up, you know, and we're developing our ego, you know, our ego needs to be contained. It's just natural. You have to sort of build these little boxes around it and, and sort of contain it. Otherwise we'd all be selfish two and three year olds, mm -hmm. right? Um, screaming every time we didn't get our way. But once you have that sort of safety net to fall back on and that ego structure, I'm confident who I am, then you can sort of go out and, and take those risks. And so by taking those risks, whether you succeed or don't, fail or succeed, whatever, you ultimately gain confidence just by taking those risks. Mm -hmm, and then all mm -hmm. of a sudden the ego structure changes a little bit. Yeah. The confidence grows a little uh -huh, bit. It's uh -huh. fascinating. Yeah. It I really that. is. I love that. That I mean that gets me really nicely into the next thing I want to talk about, which is how your confidence was maybe rattled at Duke, right? Because again, going back to just as someone watching you, you seem very self assured. At the same time, you were a 19, 20 year old kid I don't think it's unfair to say you might have been the most hated man in college basketball. Yeah. And people were just horrible to you on the court. And I'm curious what that maybe off did. Off the court too. Off the court yeah. too. What that might have done to your confidence as, you know, that's, I mean, you're still very much becoming who you, I mean, you never, I would say you never are. You're always becoming, but like when you're 20, I mean, there's a lot of insecurity, I would imagine. Like, what was that like to deal with? Um, I, yeah. So, I think you're still forming this ego structure yeah. at that age. Nothing could have prepared me for those first couple of years at Duke. Yeah. First of all, playing at Duke was way harder than I ever could have anticipated, just in sort of the day-to-day -day pressure and living in a fishbowl. And then on top of that, there was this general sort of animosity towards me. And there's a chicken or egg thing here happening. Like, I don't know which came first, but I do remember going our first road game my freshman year at Clemson and just feeling this wave of hatred coming directly at me. Mm -hmm. And there's this sense of fight or flight. And, you know, I can sort of cower in the corner and, and not really go after it or I can sort of fight back. And so I had a great game that day, probably talked a ton of shit. <laughs> and then the next game, it got a little worse. The next road game, it got a little worse after <laughs> that. And all of a sudden I had sort of created this on court, very brash persona. And so you may have perceived that as being self-assured. Some people perceive that as arrogance or mm -hmm. cockiness. Mm -hmm. And it wasn't even, because I do think there's a difference between being confident and being secure in who you are and, and both as a person and as a player and being essentially someone you're not yeah. and just kind of like a WWE wrestler mm -hmm. in the ring, right? So that's kind of what I was. And so there was this sort of snowball effect. And I wouldn't say my 
confidence was affected by having gone through that. What affected my confidence was my freshman and sophomore year failing. Mm. Our last game, my freshman year, uh, I shot two for 16 in the Sweet 16 against Kansas. Mm. In my sophomore year, was the best team I played on at Duke, and we lost to UConn in, this, in the national semifinal game. It was the only time I played in the Final Four, and I had the ball in my hands twice in the last 20 seconds, and got stripped one time and missed a three another time, and we lost by one. And it was the first time in my life where I had really tried to do something and, and didn't do it and had to sort of process failure for the first time. Mm. And it took me to a, a, a really dark place. Really? really? Yeah, it did. Wow. Really dark place. So um, I tried to, I had a conversation with my sisters my sophomore year. I was like, I don't want to do this anymore. Huh. I was like, I just want to be normal. Want I think I wanted to like do creative writing and um, join a frat. I mean, it was like, I just, I don't want this wow. life. Um, they talked me out of it, obviously. Thank God. And then at the end of my sophomore year, after this sort of UConn thing, I mean, I went off the map. I was off the grid. Hmm. I was like getting rides on Craigslist in Northern California. I don't live in Northern California. Wow. <laughs> like I was, yeah. I was like, and I told my parents like, I was like, I'm at, uh, I'm at Duke finish. I got an incomplete. I was like, my, I had was all ACC my last two years at Duke. My first two years, I didn't even go to class. Like I, I was like, um, you know, I just didn't, I didn't really care about anything. And so I was like, had told my parents, like, I'm, I'm going to, I'm going to go to Duke to finish my incomplete. And I had told Duke, I'm going to go, the Duke coaches, I'm going to go home back to Roanoke wow. to, uh, <laughs> to finish my incomplete. And really I was just like hanging out, like, wow. you know, being a college kid. <laughs> wow. What, how long did you go in that stretch without playing ball? Um, there, I think I played ball. There was like, that was, was like a, cause I'm trying to think April it's called first was the Yukon game and they finally like corralled me uh they tracked me down on like may 21st so uh i, I <laughs> they only, being duke or your parents the <laughs> duke okay. duke they tracked me down and um i think i played once during that period of time and it, i was at uh uc davis and i went to their like student rec center and me and a few buddies like just we just dominated for, sure. for a few yeah, minutes yeah but that was it for me, man. And like, you know, I, I, I always take, now I, I've learned that it's healthy for me, but I always take, from whatever the season ends, I always take a, a month or two off from just basketball. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I start, cause I go nuts with training. So I, I don't, I can't, I'll overtrain. So I, I don't do anything on the court until after July 4th. What got you back into basketball? into wanting to play it was a specific conversation so yeah so on on like may 20th or may 21st of my sophomore year like i i was uh waking up a little hungover and i got like a i got a bang 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 on this on this apartment door that i was staying at and my buddy ran up it was like a loft so my buddy ran upstairs he's like yo he's like uh coach collins and wojo are at the door <laughs> duke <laughs> assistant coaches duke for, assistant yeah, yeah. coaches and i was like oh I was like, crap, they found me. And this is Northern California? No, no this is, no. this is, okay. I'm back at Duke okay. now. Okay. I had to come back because I was, uh, my sister got married. I almost had a black, it was just crazy. I had a, I almost had a black eye for my sister's wedding. I, I had a black eye. It, it fortunately, it went away in time. So uh, my friend punched me, um, <laughs> <laughs> which is another story. But anyway, so rat, rat a tat tat, knock on the door. 
And um, I, uh, I'm like, crap. So I go downstairs. And I don't really, at this point, I'm like, I don't really have any money in my account. My parents had kind of been like, you're on your own if you're going to go this route. So I like had worn the same outfit for like seven straight days. I hadn't shaved in like probably three or four weeks. And I was, I weighed like 220 pounds. I weigh 195 now. So I was, I was overweight. So they don't really say anything. I, I come to the door and they're just like, come outside. I'm kind of like walking behind them. You know, I've got sort of that Eeyore yep. body language, you know, slouch shoulders. They don't really say anything. We get in the car. They still haven't said anything. And this was like in Irwin Square. So this is near like Duke Hospital. So we had to drive back to West Campus where the Duke offices are. I don't know that they're taking me to the office. I just just figured it out sort of along the way. Nothing is said. There's a one last stop stoplight before we get to campus. And Wojo's got his left turn signal on. That's all I hear. And all of a sudden he goes, he looks in the rear view and he goes, so what have you been doing? And, <laughs> and I don't know why I said this, but I go, just watching movies. <laughs> I'd been doing other things. But um, so then we, we got upstairs and they, they dragged me through the, the coach's offices and I had to walk by the Duke secretaries. It was, it was entirely humiliating, embarrassing. And uh, they said, they they basically said to me in so many words, um, we're disappointed, but we love you. You have two options. You can keep doing what you're doing. We're not going to give you much responsibility uh, as, a, as a leader and as a player. Truth of the matter is you'll probably, I mean, I was second team all ACC mm -hmm. my sophomore year, third team all American. They're like, you'll probably end up scoring 2,000 points. But And Coach Collins said this. He said, the really sad part is we'll never know how good you can be. Holy shit. And that crushed me. Yeah. And uh, I left that office that day with a resolve to figure my own shit out, to be a better person, and to be a better player, a better teammate, a better son, a better brother. And that summer, they put me on a schedule of like hourly. 8 a.m. checking with Coach Collins, 9 a.m. class, 10 a.m. shoot, 11 a.m. condition. It was like, yeah, yeah. So I I stuck with it. I was in summer school all summer, and then I came into you know preseason. I think I won the mile that year, our mile run. Hmm. I was like 190. I had lost wow. like 25 pounds, and I I you know was first team All American and won a national player of the year that year senior year same thing how did you rediscover the joy though or was it just pure fucking i'm not going to blow this i want to see how good i can be yeah that's that's the hard part for me even to this day um, the joy part yeah for huh. sure um i think people would be surprised to hear no, that no i look look the joy part of it is is easy if we're all we're talking about is a basketball and a hoop mm -hmm. that's very easy the stuff that goes with that team dynamics mhm mm uh, making and missing shots in games, media scrutiny, fan scrutiny, your own expectations of yourself, the things we were talking about earlier when you do have a little dip in your confidence mm -hmm. and you can't figure out why you're missing shots, those directly affect your your level of joy. I, I mean, I would love to meet an NBA player who would like go on the record and admit this. I don't think there's anybody that like, goes to work every day and is like, oh, I'm happy today. Mm -hmm. Every single day? Mm -hmm. No, no, mm -hmm. that's just impossible. It's just, there's there's too many ebbs and flows and there's too many ups and downs. So for for me, I think in that moment, you know, transitioning from my sophomore year to my junior year at Duke, 
the rediscovering of joy was getting back to essentially what made me want to go to Duke in the first place, what made me a Duke fan. And, you know, I realized that there was a standard that had been established by dozens of Duke players that had built this program by Coach K. And it was essentially time for me to have my own standard for myself. And that's not to say that since that time I haven't been a knucklehead. That's just to say that that's constantly on my mind mm. since that moment is like I have a standard and I get, I get off on it. There's a joy that I get in being like, yeah, you know, sometimes I don't really want to go to the gym, but like I'm going to go do my work and I'm going to do my work at the highest level that I can do it at. I don't have a lot of bad days in the yeah. gym, whether it's, you know, in the, in the off season or during the season, you know, I, I go there and that's my standard. And that, wow. that to me is like what I had to sort of reconfigure between my sophomore and my junior year. So what were your expectations? You have that incredible senior year at Duke, a really incredible college career. Going into the NBA, your 11th pick, which is a high pick, yeah. but I, I think I had read that you said, you know, I have it right here. You said uh, there was a quote. I think I said, I'm, I'm not going to be a superstar. Yeah, or you something. said, I think yeah. I'll be a role player. Like 80% of the players in the league are, I don't expect to be a star. Just shoot. I'll just shoot to be a team player. Yeah. Like, how do you make that transition from being, you know, um, the guy in college to, yeah. to being a role player? My expectation was I thought I was good enough at some point to start on a good team. Huh. And, you know, my role was so small. <laughs> it was practically non-existent my second year, but it was so small those first two and a half years. Yeah. That was really frustrating. And that was hard to deal with. But if I look back, and I'm, I'm not in a, place right now to be super reflective because i'm still in the middle of it but maybe towards the end but uh i'm still in it i'm still in my in my career i'm not at the end quite yet but um i would say this like i scored my 10,000th career point last year mm -hmm. uh, in december and I, and I thank you and i said this then but like either beginning of my rookie year or you know at some point in my second year as i'm languishing on the bench with with Stan Van Gundy yelling at me. If you'd asked me like, "Hey, hey, man, you're gonna you're gonna make it to year four. I'm going to fourteen. Yeah. You're gonna make it to year fourteen, and you're gonna score over ten thousand points, and you're gonna, you know, have the career earnings that you you've had." I'd be like, "You're crazy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No way. Yeah. There's no way. No, you've had a remarkable career. I mean, and and thank you to try to juxtapose the meaningfulness. I know that's not a word. Yeah. <laughs> of your NBA career with your Duke career, right? Because yeah. at Duke, people are like, "This is the fucking guy. Yeah. I mean, this is the yeah. LeBron James of the NCAA, essentially." Yeah. And then I think like five, six, seven, eight years into your NBA career, people are saying like, "You know who's had a who's having a pretty good career?" Shockingly, is JJ Redick. And I'm curious which of those you find more meaningful. The like everyone at Duke expecting you to be a star and going out and doing it or the like nobody expecting much from you and then being like, he's settled into like a really impactful and impressive role player career in the NBA. It goes back to my own expectations. And as I just said, my career is far exceeded beyond winning an NBA championship, which I haven't done yet, <laughs> but my career is far exceeded anything that I expected. And so I'm very, like, I don't think pride is a good thing, but I am very proud yeah. of the career that I've had. I am very proud of that. I would say this about the Duke part. I'm also very proud about that, but it was such a special time in my life and I, I'm not a nostalgic person and it's very hard for me to really think about those times. I think mostly about 
my sophomore year and huh. how Im impactful that was for the rest of my life hmm. and how meaningful those moments were, both the bad and the good. That's what I think about more so. And, and even like the losses, I think about the losses. I don't think a lot about, actually I don't think at all really about the awards or the records. Huh. And part of that is I, I don't want to because I, I don't want to feel comfortable. I get emotional like walking into Cameron. And I'm not, I'm not just saying this. I really get emotional walking into Cameron. I don't like that feeling. I, I, I don't spend enough time at Duke for that simple reason. I feel very comfortable there. And I don't like that feeling. I, huh. wanna, I, I don't want to like be like, oh, I'm complacent. I'm good. You, know? yeah. I, it's, you said it earlier. Like you, you want to be becoming. Yeah. You don't want to feel like you've arrived. And uh -huh. like if I go back and look at my time at Duke, like I arrived there. Like I, 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 when huh. I got done, I was, oh, that's great. And that was a very, there's finality to that because of you could only play four years. I played all four years. Like I'm trying to, to extend the finality of my NBA career. Huh. And because of that, I don't want to look back on, on the Duke stuff. Do you have like routines or habits or ways you work intentional discomfort into your life? I think that I do it uh, subconsciously without even doing it intentionally. Okay. Um, and... I could think about how I train mm -hmm. uh, is a very sort of physical example of being uncomfortable. But I think challenging yourself to be better at your craft and really addressing <laughs> addressing weaknesses, mm -hmm. uh, that's uncomfortable. Yeah, We were talking earlier about hearing our own voice on a <laughs> podcast, right? Yes. And there's a certain vulnerability there. And watching film in the middle of a shooting slump and actually sitting down and watching the film of you going 13 for 52 over mm -hmm. a four game stretch and watching those 39 misses, that's, that's uncomfortable. But uh -huh. it's sometimes you have to do those things. If you're comfortable being uncomfortable, then you sort of inherently and subconsciously seek out that feeling of being uncomfortable. Yeah. Yeah, does yeah, that, yeah. does that make sense? No, totally. Yeah. But that's a real struggle. I mean, that's something I'm going through right now. I feel like is, yeah. is the, is recognizing when, discomfort is creeping up and you're avoiding it. Like I do it in in, in yeah. really petty small ways, but when I'm trying to write something and I come to a discomfort, like, I don't know what the next sentence is. That's when you go on Twitter or Instagram or whatever. And you can spend a whole day doing that. Yeah. And to, to train yourself to go towards that discomfort is a really difficult thing, but something that I think is like pays rewards and dividends down the line. If you can train yourself to, to walk into that. I, I totally get what you're saying. And I think, that for me, the the thing that I, I wish I was better about was my own mental health mm -hmm. because I'm uncomfortable really like addressing it. And I know that I need more me time mm -hmm. and I put it off, you mm -hmm. know? And when I do get me time, I fill it with nonsense. I fill yeah. it with scrollinggq.com oh, yeah. <laughs> you yeah, know, yeah, yeah, or yeah, whatever yeah, it may yeah. be like i'm on business insider for the seventh time today same same lead story same lead story it's not getting me anywhere and so like for me like i i my trainer and i we've talked a lot about that this summer is like i'm at the stage in my career where i'm so habitualized with training my body and i'm so habitualized with training my skills mm-hmm I need to get the same way with training my mind. Huh. Cause to me, like as I get older, that's sort of gotta be the yeah. advantage. Yeah. I'm, I'm losing it athletically. Guys are the skill level and the athleticism 
And these guys have had personal trainers since they're 12 or 13 years old and yeah. they're coming in the league just able to do everything. And so it's like, how do I, how do I train my mind, mm -hmm. you know, so that I can, obviously you want to be a, a good human, um, but how do I train my mind so that when I'm having those inevitable downs, yeah. the valleys of the season, how do we make them short-lived? Uh -huh. How do I not get on that sort of downward spiral yeah, yeah. where it lasts two, three weeks? And I can get out of it quicker. And you know what? Maybe if maybe if it doesn't, and it's out of my control, and I just have a shooting slump, which they come. Like how do how do I maintain that joy, and yeah. how do I maintain my sanity? Have you found any answers? I started meditating recently. Okay. Um, it is. It's been interesting. Okay. Yeah, it's been interesting. I do think that I'm learning how to be more mindful. And I've noticed that when I have multiple days in a row that I meditate, I find that I'm more patient with people and I'm more patient with myself and I'm more patient with Chelsea, my wife, and my two boys, Knox and Kai. Like I just, I feel like there has been sort of a, a tangible benefit to, to doing that. And obviously I, I started this uh, a couple months ago, but I, I wanna continue it during the season and, and, and I'm hoping that I see that during the season and I, I think too, like when we talk about mental health, obviously there's the component of speaking to someone about your own mental mm -hmm. health. Mm -hmm. And guys like Kevin Love and DeMar DeRozan have been such advocates for that yeah. for, for our league. And it's been an awesome thing to see that you can now talk about these sort of things. And I'm hopeful that like, I will eventually find the time to really speak to someone. Because I look, I had three years, um, talking to someone when I was at Duke. Um, it was incredibly, incredibly helpful. And then, you know, I had a, I had court mandated, I had to talk to somebody <laughs> after I got a DUI uh, right before the NBA draft uh, 13 years ago. So I talked to somebody for a year, my first year in Orlando too, and that was really helpful. And, and, and you know, and then you, you, you start, you know, kids and all that, but on the topic of confidence and on the topic of mental health, and it, it, they're, they're synonymous, like they, yeah. they go hand in hand. Totally. But it's difficult to meditate. It's, I mean, there are a lot more difficult things, but it is difficult psychologically to be with yourself. <laughs> to turn your brain off? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yeah, but I knew... I, do you have kids? No. Okay. Um, I there's There's been a total... Like your perspective, everything... And I, I'm sure you've heard this before. I think your, your sister, you have a nephew, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah, so uh, when, I'm sure she said this, but like when you have a, a kid, your perspective on literally everything changes. And, you know, I, I would say like, it's not a coincidence that my best years in the NBA have been since I had children. You know, I, my, I had Knox right after I turned 30 and my best years have been in my thirties. And, you know, he, there's a certain level of confidence that, that he gives me. And now I have Kai who's three. There's a certain level of confidence that, that I have because of them, because there's there's no substitute for that feeling when you walk in the door after a road trip, or if you come home late and you get back and it's 1 a.m. in the morning and you wake up within the next day and you see the look in your, their, their eyes, you're like, oh, it literally, it maybe it doesn't matter as much as I think it matters. Yes, yeah, you yeah, know? yeah, yeah. And that's, and that's a, it was a weird feeling at first, it really was. But it's it's such an assuring feeling, yeah. Because it is. Look, I, I take the game so seriously, and I take I take the makes and misses so seriously, and maybe I shouldn't, but I do. 
and and those moments with them, it just yeah. it makes it seem so trivial sometimes. Huh. <laughs> you played under some incredible coaches: Coach K, Doc Rivers, Brett Brown, Bob Stan. I'm curious if if there's one lesson from one of those guys that you find yourself coming back to again and again, particularly off the court. I'm going to give you three things. Okay. Okay. So from coach, I learned adaptability. And by that, I mean, he is the the greatest, to me, the greatest coach in, in college history and potentially maybe one of the greatest coaches in any sport in any era. And he could, if he wanted to, uh, you know, be very rigid and coach the same way every year and get people to buy into whatever system he wanted to coach. But he believes in sort of the people he has on that year's team. He mm. believes in each individual guy. How do I maximize these guys' strengths? And year to year, that that means he coaches each team differently. And it's brought him great success. And to not be rigid and to just be adaptable, you know, you have to do that in a locker room. Uh, you have to do that in your relationships. You have to do that in in life. Like, mm-hmm. So that's, that's a great lesson I learned. Huh. Stan, for me, was personal accountability. He was the most accountable coach of himself that I've ever played for. The first thing he did after a loss or after we were in a rough stretch where we were two and three in our last five games, he always said, what am I, what can I do better? What, what am, what am I not doing right? And then Doc's lesson to me, what he would always talk about, and I wish we had been better when I was with the Clippers was cooperation. And I think we all have our own individual goals, our own individual hangups, but we have to figure out a way to cooperate. Hmm. And then there's the cooperation on, let's say, like a very micro level that we need to have with our neighbors. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then you know you sort of get out and you go on the macro level, the cooperation we need to have uh, in society, the cooperation that we need to have with people that are different than us, mm-hmm. that maybe think differently or view things differently or talk differently or look differently. We need to be able to cooperate. That's great. Sounds like you have some great things to teach these uh, <laughs> these young Pelicans. We'll see. We'll see. I saw three. Only three guys on the team were born in the eighties. I didn't realize Zion Williamson was born in the the aughts. He oh, was yeah. born in the two thousand. I just turned thirty, and if I played for the Pelicans, I would be the third oldest player on your team. Oh man. <laughs> yeah. But you, I will say, you've you've made the playoffs every year of your career. So they have a I actually, they have a yeah. great mentor in in, in you. I. Uh, we, I was down in New Orleans yesterday. Uh, we had a couple guest speakers, Tommy Smith and Edwin Moses. But after the talk was done, Zion and I were, were back in the locker room. And it was the first time I'd really gotten a chance to spend some time with him. And so we were chatting and it was like a 20-minute conversation. And at the end, I said to him, hey, I just want to let you know, man, I've made the playoffs every year of my, my career. Don't fuck this up for me. <laughs> <laughs> That's so great. What did he say? He laughed and he was like, I read that stat the other day. He goes, I'll try not to fuck it up. <laughs> so the last question we ask on the podcast is for a favorite fuck up. A favorite fuck up. Yeah. <sighs> of my own? Yeah, <laughs> yes. People always ask this as if as if I want you to sound off on someone else's right. fuck up. So my boy Tim the other day. No, I'm just kidding. I wouldn't, <laughs> I wouldn't throw him under the bus. Um, my favorite fuck up. Man. It's not my favorite because it was the worst night of my life, but I'm so glad that I got arrested for a DUI. We all live in this sort of um, illusion of, you know, that we're immortal. And, and when you're that age, you, you, really, you really believe that. And 
you know, I'd be lying if I said it was the first time that I had ever driven drunk, you know? And it was uh, like two weeks, maybe even 13 days, 12 days before the NBA draft. And I'd come back to Durham to get an epidural because I had had a pretty sig significant herniated disc in my back. And um, it was like, buddies wanted to go to a bar and I was like, oh, I'll drive. I wasn't, I didn't feel like I was that drunk. And I, you know, blew a 0.11 and, you know, it was the best thing that ever happened to me hmm. because I, I had driven drunk before, drunk, drunk. And I'm not saying 0.11 isn't drunk, 0.11 is drunk, whatever. But I'd driven drunk before. And, you know, I'm so glad that happened because I'd never hurt anyone. And if, if I had hurt someone myself, I mean, God forbid, like, you know, so I'm glad that happened. Yeah. That's a... I could tell some other stories, but <laughs> that's the one that comes to mind. Yeah, yeah. Well, best of luck to you. I appreciate you coming on and sharing all that. And um, I will be rooting for the Pelicans. All right. Thank you, my man. That's a wrap for today. Thank you guys for listening. Thank you especially to JJ for coming on and sharing all that he did. Thank you to our producer, Jessamyn Molly. We will be back next Tuesday. If you like what you're hearing, please hit subscribe so you don't miss any future episodes. Talk to you guys next Tuesday.